Hi, I'm Jason Latour. I'm from another, another dimension. Too many who know the angles, uncover and untangle all the questions and the webs left out to tangle. I'm Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I'm the founder and editor of AmazingSpiderTalk.com. Thanks for joining me for a special Amazing Friends episode of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. I hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between a fan and a creator as we look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. Mark is still moving into his new home and allowing his life to settle into place, so I thought I'd try to offer up something special for you while we wait for his return. So I reached out to friend of the show, Jason Latour, the co-creator of Spider-Gwen, writer of Edge of Spider-Geddon number 2, and of the upcoming Spider-Man annual featuring Spider-Ham. I talked to him about all of these books and creations, as well as his input on and reaction to Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. I hope you enjoy this special interview. Remember, this episode wouldn't be possible without support from our wonderful Patreon subscribers, whose patronage allows us to assemble the guests we have on the show, to do all of our research, and so much more. If you enjoy the show and want to help us continue while getting amazing bonus content, like our reviews of Amazing Spider-Man when we originally released them for our Patreon subscribers, go to our show notes and check out our Patreon page and consider joining our team. Now let's get to the action. Here's my interview with Jason Latour. Well, now let's meet one of our amazing spider friends. The kind of guy I go to other friends who recommend. Find out about the things they created. You'll love them so much that you wish you dated. But you're just friends. They're an amazing friend. A friend, a friend, a friend. They're an amazing friend. Well, welcome back on the show again, Jason Latour. We're really happy to have you here on Amazing Spider Talk. Hey, thanks for having me, man. You got to suffer through me, you know, waking up a little bit. But <laughs> I'll take sleepy Jason Latour if I have to. Okay. So uh, last time we talked, I can't believe it was all the way back when Edge of the Spider Verse number two had just come out. I believe it was the night after that comic had come out. Oh my God. I know. And uh, you and Robbie expressed to us that you had no idea if there would be a Spider Gwen series. Uh, which is like insane to think about now. But let's forget all the insanity that's come since that first issue and go back to that moment. Can you take us behind the scenes of uh, the discussions that came from the initial hype around that costume and the issue and whether or not Gwen would get her own series? How far back do you want to go? (laughs) Well, I I guess I'm just curious about the kind of conversations that happened around the release of that that issue that ultimately wound up with her own series happening. I mean, it's fun. it's funny that what was considered sort of a splash, I guess, um, at the time had very much to do with the fact that it wasn't so much that the first issue sold so well. I think it was that the subsequent reprintings did so well. You know, um, I think the first issue is like you know only like forty thousand copies or something, and I. 
I laugh every convention I do because I'm like, how many more of these are left? (laughs) 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 It's like every convention somebody has a fresh one, you know, like a a pristine uh, virgin copy of that that issue. And I'm always like, how many more of these are even left in the world at this point? They haven't been sullied by my my bad handwriting. I've got one Uh, of them. Well, that's good. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know that I, I don't know that I have one um, on your tally, you know, right? Yeah, uh, it was all pretty fast, you know, like it was a there was a conversation. The conversations were like, you know, maybe prepare yourself to do a, a second story that quickly went to like, well, you got to find a way to bring her to the Marvel Universe, uh, uh, which, you know, I, I pushed back against, but was also still sort of willing to do if that was what it was going to take um i was just sort of like i'll figure it out because i just wanted to do more with that character so badly so yeah within the span of like a week or a week and a half we went from prepare yourself to do possibly another short story there was a talk of me and robbie we're gonna do moon night together (laughs) oh wow yeah uh and that quickly got scrapped and you know before before you know i had time to even really think we were you know, it was like, all right, start writing the first issue. Um, and I was very fortunate in that, I don't know, you know, through the, the process of it has, was so organic. And I've had a lot of time to unpack how we got to where we were. And some of it is obviously like ascribing motivation and mythology to, uh, or self-mythology to just decisions you made in the moment, you know, instinctual stuff. But I got very lucky in that, like, I just always sort of, build stories world first and with that one you know there was not a lot of time to go like well what is going to be happening in this issue and or in this comic and six issues so it was very lucky that we had a pretty firm grasp on who we wanted the character to be and what the world felt like and from there you know it was a little easier to get our legs up under us and running because we really had no time to plan i'm very envious of a lot of my friends that have worked for marvel and DC because it feels like they always have you know years to plan, <laughs> <laughs> and I've just never had that luxury. So I'm not complaining. I will take like somebody firing a starter pistol and saying like go with this wild success over having you know years to plan something that nobody you know seems to <laughs> that seems to get lost in the shuffle any day. So you know this is a very privileged complaint on my part. Well, it's really interesting that you say that because the book seemed, you know, pretty focused throughout in that, like, the first few issues, we really met the whole cast that would kind of take us through to the end. Yeah. Uh, You know, we've been on record as saying it's very personal to all of us. And I think that, you know, that is no, for me, that's heightened, you know, by a thousand. There's a lot of me and Glenn. There's a lot of my respect for, like, my parents in there, uh, especially my mom. I don't know, you know, I just sort of waited a long time to sort of like make a, to, to have the opportunity to to have a comic that comments on how I feel about all this stuff. Superheroes in particular and Spider-Man mythos. So it all was just sort of a perfect storm in that way. I was always kind of amazed that you, Robbie, and Rico essentially got to do your own indie comic under Marvel's umbrella. Talks about bringing Gwen into the Marvel Universe aside. Can you talk about what kind of direction editorial gave you guys early on? Like, how long was the leash that they gave you? I mean, money talks, right? (laughs) uh, (laughs) It was just such a runaway thing, you know? And I think 
uh, I'm reticent to like get into the the di- like dish and dirt about it, but I've been pretty honest about the fact that like up to that point, my Marvel career was not going the way I wanted it to go. There were some things behind the scenes that were I was not happy about, and Nick Lowe had hired me prior to do some other things, and we had had a pretty good working relationship. So when things started to go sour elsewhere, I think you know. I'd, I don't give him enough credit for stepping up and like giving us that opportunity. I mean, sure, it was sort of a throwaway one-off thing, but uh, you know, he could he could have called anybody for that. And you know, unpacking it, you know, looking back on it, it's like the fact that three men did this comic is a little weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know, I always say like I was afraid that the book, I was afraid that they were going to do something with Glenn Stacy and that it was going to turn out bad and. That's not to disparage like editorial or or Dan Slott in particular, because, you know, Dan has been really forthright and like like too hard on himself in terms of saying that, you know, the best thing he did was to stay out of our way because I didn't know at the time that he had plans for Gwen. I had no idea. I just knew that there was a list that had, you know, six or seven names on it. And Gwen was the flashing red light that to me was like, oh, that could be that could go really sideways. And so our our casting on the book had a lot to do with just, like, if you pass on this, like, what else becomes of it, you know? And sometimes I think that, you know, if that's the way, I, I don't know, may, you know, I don't really, I'm not like a, there's a plan to the universe kind of person, but sometimes those opportunities present themselves and you just have to run with them, you know? Well, even um, when given an opportunity like that, you did some really bold things like removing Gwen's powers or having her fight, you know, Harry and end the fight in a conversation or, you know, maiming and ca- killing off characters left and right. I mean, were these all things you had to kind of really step up to bat to do? Well, you know, like, I do think there was a one thing editorial and I definitely agreed on was that Gwen needed to stand on her own. You know, um, one of the early pet peeves I used to have would, pe- would be when people would say, like, oh, she's just Spider-Man. That's a girl. And and I was like, well, look, the the idea that it's an alternate universe is inherently baked in there. Like, you have to play with those ideas. That's sort of the selling point of the comic in a way. But as for like who she's actually supposed to be, you know, we were trying to discover that the same way she was from the first issue we met her in, you know, and she just fundamentally has a different upbringing, and a different context. And I knew um, very early on that, like, she wasn't a lunchbox character yet. You know, like a thing I talk about a lot is uh, when you buy an issue of Wolverine or you buy an issue of any Batman or whatever, any book that has the title of the character on it, the expectation is that that character is going to survive and be relatively unchanged because, you know, we've seen that character on lunchboxes and bedsheets and, you know, whatever, T-shirts. But at the time, Gwen was not those things yet. And fortunately, we got to see it through to the end, even after she became one of those things. But the thought was like, uh, you can't do this with Spider-Man. Like, Spider-Man can't subvert your expectations in the same way if you do you always feel like you're you're gonna put them back Mm -hmm. in the box you know and with gwen it was like i mean if you see the way we ended that book or our run on that book the thought was let's do something that you can't do with spider-man like let's explore these themes in a way where she can actually develop much faster and much differently than peter parker ever would she has different hang-ups you know and it's a different exploration of 
responsibility and accountability and and also it's a much different world you know, it's much like her universe was much more like something from 1965 you know in terms of like uh how populated it was and and the fact that it got to be a sing more or less a singular team telling that story those early marvel comics were a lot more even though they crossed over they were a lot more sort of the voice of a couple of people you know so any massive changes or intersectionality of it all was kind of by design you know um and nowadays there's so many plates spinning that sometimes things contradict each other without even trying to you know <laughs> or, or you know without even with no awareness you know it's not intentional it's just that there's so much going on so it was just like a weird perfect storm man like it, stepping back from but it, it's like i was the kid that used to devour marvel handbook <laughs> which is why there's this Marvel handbook entries in the back. <laughs> Cause I was just like, we need to flesh this world out and we don't have the pages to flesh it all out. I'm a little dis. I mean, I think they've done a great job with the collections overall, especially the hard covers, but I wish those entries were in there. They're kind of important to the narrative. Yeah, I think so too. Um, I, I, I don't know. Maybe there'll be an omnibus or something with those in there. I've only found it weird when they exclude letters columns and things like that from the omnibuses like to me those are just as essential as any other part of the comic well and with these there was a lot of effort put into them too you know like um just writing them for myself a lot of times would answer questions for where i needed or wanted things to land you know um there were a couple times where i was like oh shit, did i write myself into a corner <laughs> in the <laughs> book entry you know yeah, editorial was always, you know, there was never a lot of stuff. There was never much that was too crazy. If we ever, um, you know, they were always pretty supportive and um, uh, willing to take a risk. Because I think you have to remember, like, they have to play it safe on a lot of books. Uh, so a lot of times editorial is just sort of chomping at the bit for one or two books that they can take some wild swings at. Right. And when one of those books hits, you know, it's sort of like, it's fun for everybody, you know. Did you ever feel the kind of sting of that, like, double-edged sword of popularity? You know, you, you're seeing the character become so beloved, but that, like, love of the character begins to bleed into, like, well, needing to control the character more. Uh, well, you know, like, you get some fan pushback, obviously. Like, anytime something becomes popular, there's going to be, it's like, it's, <laughs> the band analogy is really fitting. This is a lot of people who are like, hey, I don't like, you know, just because something's popular, I don't like it or I'm not going to give it a try. And then there's going to be people who are like, oh, I liked it better when it was a one shot. <laughs> uh, in terms of like Marvel controlling things, uh, you know, that we were actually, you know, obviously when you're like working on something that you bled for, right, and someone else is involved that is making decisions that don't have anything to do with you, you're going to get a little frustrated every now and then. There's some specific things that I don't, I won't, I won't get sure. into. But, yeah, you don't but, need to. But, uh, you know, for the most part, it was money talks, you know, it was like, and, and, you know, like when you have some creators doing stuff that you can't really put your finger on why it works, good business is to just be like, well, let them continue to do this until this doesn't work. And, I feel like we only really brushed up against, in a way, we only really brushed up against that sort of stuff once the the natural entropy of the book took hold. You know, like every book has sales that are going to dip over time. Like even even Spider Man. Like if you have the same team on Spider Man for too long, it's going to stop selling. 
you know, exponent. It's going to lose an exponential amount of readers, you know. Right. Um, which is unfortunate, but that's just sort of how it seems to work, at least in the way the game is set up right now. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it has to work that way, but that's a whole other discussion. But, uh, you know, there was a point where she became really popular and we, at kind of the height of her popularity, which is when we did that Spider-Women crossover, for example. And that was, a, I felt like, a good usage of her popularity because it was about sort of like trying to uh, have all three of those books reflect on one another and like get, let their audiences cross over. And uh, with those three books in particular, I felt like they all benefited from that. I was a big fan of Dennis Hopeless's Spider-Woman, so I was thrilled to see these books cross over with each other. That's the best crossover I've ever worked on, and I think both Robbie and Dennis and the teams that worked on those books did amazing comics. You know, in that room, when we put that crossover together, was one of my favorite things that that I've done work for hire-wise. I, I'm, I, I'm in the same place as you. I rarely read crossovers I enjoy, but I think that elevated all three books. Yeah, and I'm thrilled that that's, you know, the third Spider-Verse movie at this point. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's what the, the, the plan is right now. Yeah, you're always going to have, you know, editorial ups and downs or the, the concern, the macro concerns, because, you know, she was in the process of becoming a lunchbox. You know, I think if you talk to Sean and McGuire right now, she would probably have a different experience about, you know, the expectations of who and what Gwen is supposed to be now. Um, because, you know, she's been different iterations of the character. And, I, and I've always been open to that to a certain extent. I just wanted us to get through our story, you know, because I knew we weren't going to stay forever. All, you know, all praise to Bendis or whatever. I think he's, you know, he's an icon. Uh, but I never had any interest on, you know, writing Gwen as long as he wrote Miles, which is probably why I'm stupid. <laughs> 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 you know, like, <clears throat> and that crossover was another perfect example of like, um, just trying to use those the the popularity of characters to enhance two characters that were on less solid footing than. You know, say Spider-Man or Batman or whatever the top-selling book is at the time. Um, it felt very important to me that Gwen, who was sort of like the next version of Ultimate Spider-Man, meet the other version and have a significant relationship. If not, the romance is I, was always intended to be sort of up in the air. You know, seems to be reflected the same way in, in Into the Spider-Verse. Yeah, they really get it, man. I really have had the good fortune of talking to those guys a lot. And, um, you know, specifically Phil Lord, and he just really gets it. Uh, he's really uh, the kind of guy that I'm like, man, I wish I had known this guy for a long time because I just, he's so smart and so driven and talented and at the same time, like, really open in a way that you don't, you don't hear often of. Hollywood people. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's a whole, we can get into that in a little bit. Yeah. I'd like, I'd like to get back to the comic before we move on to the movie, uh, just to kind of finish things up. One of the things that I'm, uh, curious about is that like, you know, you've said that you, Robbie and Rico kind of collaborated on Gwen's costume design and the design of the comics, you know, visual landscape and everything. And, yeah. you know, it's, it, it might just be my interpretation, but, like, I think that the effect of Spider-Gwen's visuals extend far beyond just her world, but kind of had a ripple effect 
on all of Marvel in the way that they kind of hire artists and envision characters. I hope I, so. I, do you? How do you feel about Marvel's kind of expanding style and relationship with more independent creators? Well, I'm always going to be pushing for things to be a little crazier. <laughs> uh, I just, you know, I grew up in a time when uh, my art itself is... Again, we'll get into this with the movie later, but like there's sort of, for lack of a better term, there's like sword schools, you know, in comics. And it doesn't mean they're like necessarily competitive, but there's sort of like philosophies, you know, uh, that people will more or less adhere to. And my philosophy is one that's shared by, you know, a lot of people who happen to be sort of from my region and from my era. And I really believe in like expressive, abstract, abstractions of realism. You know, like cartooning that's like informed by reality. Uh, I think that's a good that you need that good balance of the absurd and the realistic. It's like peanut butter and chocolate, you know. And I think too often, to my taste, uh, you only get one or the other. And now, like Robbie would skew more towards uh, uh, pure abstraction than say, sure. like I. Would. And I just feel like homogeneity. Uh, homogeneity. I don't even know. Homog. <laughs> <laughs> The homogenous kills everything, you know? It's like the anti-life. Uh, like, if everything's all cartoony, then the line is going to be boring. And if everything's all super pseudo-realistic, the line is going to be boring. And that was a, a time when, uh, you know, uh, Robbie and Rico in particular, like, you know, the way Rico colors, would he couldn't have gotten a job five years before that, you know? He always colored that well in that way. But it took success for people to say, like, oh, maybe things can work uh, and be attractive to people in an abstract way. I used to do this trick where I would go to the comic shop and, like, stand against the back wall and sort of, like, take my eyes out of focus and see what I was drawn to. Mm. And it was always the thing that was counter to everything else. Yeah, I feel like Marvel, for a long time, they had that house style. And then you got the guys from Image who kind of came in and blew everything up. And then right. we've kind of moved back towards a house style, and it's hard to pinpoint who the you know the artist behind it is. I would point at like someone like Stuart Eminem uh, or or something like that, and that's not to like diminish Stuart Eminem, whose art is incredible. But I think he became the new kind of copycat for everybody else. Not that they were copying, but they were kind of basing their model on that kind of kind of like crisp, clean you know, realistic style. And, and I'm so glad, I mean, as much as I love his stuff, I'm glad to see kind of more expressive things under Marvel's banner now that someone like Ryan Stegman, who's really in that McFarlane vein can really find a home. Well, I think all the, you know, the key is basically who that the art needs to fit the tone of the comic. Sure. Vice versa. You know, Spider-Gwen is a completely different comic with a different art team. And I think you even see that within the run we did, you know, like if I'm working, the issues Bengal did are completely different than the ones that, you know, Robbie did or the ones Chris Visions did or the anthology issue that was the annual, you know, um, tone, tone more than anything is reflective in art and it changes the way you take a story in, you know, somebody posted, uh, you know, something of, uh, from Morrison's X-Men run that was uh, Cyclops and Emma Frost kissing at the, the grave of Jean Grey the other day. And I kept thinking, a different artist draws that, and that kiss feels completely different. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it feels <laughs> like, you know, lurid in the way that it's displayed 
in the actual comic, but if it was a different artist, maybe it feels sweet, you know, uh, or gentle or kind or whatever. Um, and I think that's the thing that gets lost in the production cycle of making comics a lot of times. And I mean, you know, it's, it's people do their best, you know, to, to, I think, but again, like when you're caught up in it, you're working on these books all the time. Sometimes that's a frustrating process to, to suffer through, you know? Sure. As one of Spider-Gwen's creators, you've seen the character's popularity and representation, I think, spike unlike any other modern superhero. I mean, I can't imagine another character that went from concept to movie as quick as this character did. What does being the creator of the character kind of afford you? Are people talking to you about other interpretations of the character and getting your feedback on other projects, including her? Or is your kind of time done with the character and they've moved on to other kind of more... uh, um, industry embedded people at Marvel. I thought I was done. <laughs> uh, I, you know, the, my main involvement with Gwen these days is just basically been like some light consultation on the Spider Verse stuff. I could take you through some of that if you want, because um, I, I like telling the story. Sure, I'd love to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I knew the movie was coming, and like for for you know. For probably the better part of a year, we knew she was probably involved, but no one would ever really like confirm it, you know. Mm-hmm. But we knew some people who were working on the. We knew some artists that were working on it that had sort of like, let's just say they intimated. That's the best legal definition. <laughs> <laughs> they intimated to us that she was a big part of the movie, so we were excited about it, you know. But we really had no involvement in in it up until about eight months before the movie came out. So uh, last summer, I went to San Diego Comic-Con, and San Diego Comic-Con is such a crazy, you know, like Hydra. I used to call it octopus theory. I used to say if you had eight arms, you could reach it, and somebody just hollered out something, you could reach in every direction and probably touch it. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just a, a weird nerd Mardi Gras kind of thing. And it used to be very stressful. And then it does I feel like Mardi Gras. That's totally uh, uh, apt. Yeah. yeah, and I just stopped caring at some point, though. I just stopped worrying about it and just decided, like, hey, you know, if I go to San Diego and I try and have a good time and do some signings, like, there's so many people, you know, there's so many, there's just, like, a lot of weird opportunity floating in the air. And a lot of times those things don't pass off, like, don't pay off, but every now and then they do. Uh, so just by being there, sometimes weird things happen, you know. So I'm there and I'm going, I go out to dinner with a friend of mine that plays in the NFL and we have a buddy, Ryan Khalil that plays for the Carolina Panthers. And so we have dinner and after dinner we go our separate ways and not 30 minutes later, he calls me and he says, I'm at the Lord and Miller party. They want to meet you. And I was like, you're at a lawyer party. (laughs) 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 You know, San Diego and I'd had a couple drinks and I wasn't thinking it through. And he was like, you know, the guys that uh, are doing the Spider-Verse movie, they really want to, they're really big fans and they've been trying to get in touch with you and they, uh, you know, want to meet you while you're here. And I was like, well, sure, let's, let's do it. So the next day we went to lunch and we just really hit it off and they invited, they were really excited to show me, you know, the footage of what they had finished for Gwen. But they also made it clear to me that they had some parts in the story that they felt were a little squishy. You know, uh, like some of Gwen's motivations and some of her reactions mm. to things. And also Spider-Ham. 
they had all this really great like uncut John Mulaney stuff. Oh but they, man! They, but they didn't really have him figured out yet. So they you must have like, been in heaven. Oh yeah. <laughs> like that was the part where we really bonded was I just was like, these guys are like in love with Spider-Ham. <laughs> and I just knew we were on the same page because like they were am- being ambitious enough to include that in their movie. You know, like the idea of like really embracing the absurdity of uh, all these different iterations as long as well as how serious it can be. Um, like I said, that it's all like that peanut butter and chocolate, you know, where they bounce off one another. Um and just knowing that they were going to include that in their movie and that was important to them, that felt to me like, oh, we're on the same page, you know. What universe did you wind up in? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they were like, you know, do you want to come screen the movie and give us notes? And I went in for what I thought was just going to be, you know, an hour, to, you know, a couple hours and it ended up being two days. Um, wow. And, you know, we just sat around and talked about things that were actionable in the movie because the movie was about 40% animated. And I gave them, you know, my insights on Gwen's character and how I think that they could help, you know, balance Ham out a little bit. And, and, you know, just a couple little general notes about the movie. Uh, And I'd say, you know, I probably gave them eight notes and they used about five or six of them. It was kind of stunning. And we went in the art department and they, you know... Uh, we're just super excited to like pick, you know, our, my brain and know the, some inside thought on, on how the book was approached art wise. And we ended up sort of like, um, we got to contribute a comic that unfortunately flips by a little too fast, uh, that I did the cover for and the, and Robbie and Rico did the interiors for. So they, you know, they really invited us into the process in a way they didn't have to. Mm hmm. Uh, but I think, I mean, I'll be bold enough to say, I think it made that part, those parts of the movie a little better. And, you know, I'm just, I'm really flattered and, uh, humbled and, you know, there's 800 people, 800 amazing artists that worked on this movie. Uh, so I feel like I humble brag a lot about this thing. (laughs) I'm, I'm really, really proud of it. And I consider myself to be a part of it, but I am mostly proud that we inspired them to do what they did and that they felt in love with it enough to treat it so respectfully, you know. Is the plot line involving like Gwen safeguarding herself and her heart from making new friendships from you? That was actually already in there. They pulled that stuff from the comic. A lot of the stuff that I added was like relationship stuff between her and Miles and her and Peter. Uh her and Peter in particular. Uh, there was a, you know, she was kind of inactive in their dynamic for a while. Hmm. Uh, and there's some, you know, without taking too much credit for stuff, um, I definitely, the part where, you know, he sees Mary Jane in particular was a big note of mine. And right. how Gwen. Gonna get her some roles? Yes. Well, yeah, no, it's just the idea that, like, Gwen has been through all this before. You know, she's ha- basically has to live her life surrounded by Peter Parker's. Which is, you know, a torment, but it also is, um, you know, one of the things that she views as a badge of honor that she's moving forward. Um, and, you know, Peter at that point in the movie is sort of being drawn backwards. He's actually, you know, basically com- considering committing suicide to save the universe at that point, which is a thing they do a really nice balance of. It doesn't get too dark, but, you know, you get the idea that he's he's sad and he's willing to sacrifice himself. And I felt like 
that moment between them in particular was important for her to have to show who she is and what she's been through, but also to sort of uh, teach Peter something rather than, you know, just be that she's this unearned, fully competent badass, you know, like I think we, they needed to remind the audience that, you know, she's lost a lot. It wasn't just a, a, a guy that turned into a lizard that she lost. She's seeing, she's living through this over and over and over again. And it was beautifully understated. Thanks. <laughs> I think you can say that about the whole movie, you know. Like the sure. Movie is, I feel like I'm in, like I'm in an unassailably great movie. Every, <laughs> yeah. every time I watch it, I pick up on new details. Like even just the glass breaking when Miles jumps off the building is it's like oh yeah, the reason it's breaking is because he's scared to death. Right. There's so many amazing you know things that fold back in. You know, there's things that seem like plot plot holes, but then when you look closer, they're like no, those are actually like things that make the plot even better. It's just a fantastic... It feel like I got to be in Back to the Future or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I think it's not... It doesn't... It's not a movie that has the, 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 the short-term monetary reach of something live action. It's, you know, let's face it, like, people are still hung up on animation for whatever reason. Sure. Like, these, these Marvel cinematic movies are amazing, but they're basically cartoons. And people can't like make still are having trouble with that divide that like when you go see Avengers Endgame, you're watching like 50 percent of that movie is animated, you know, is animated CGI. So you're basically watching a cartoon anyway, for whatever reason, people still have trouble with that. But I think this movie went a long way towards changing people's opinions about animation and is like a watershed moment for people who want to draw stories. Yeah, uh, one, of the, one of the things I've loved seeing the most on Twitter is the people that are like, hey, nobody told me how great this movie actually is. And you're like, no, everybody was saying that. It just yeah. it took you to get past the animation to realize that like the cartoon movie is actually more adult than a lot of the live action movies. Right. I've been ro- People have been rolling their eyes at me since the first time I saw this movie. <laughs> first time I saw this movie, I was like, this movie's amazing. I, like, I was, like, if this movie comes together anywhere near what it could be, like, this is going to be one of the best movies you've ever seen. And people were just like, oh, yeah, sure. You, you don't have any reason to think that, do you? <laughs> I saw it two months ahead of time. And it was the most torturous thing to not, like, really, like, just talk everywhere about it. And nobody believed me. And I started to like disbelieve myself. I was like, like, this is the best superhero movie ever made. Is that, is that like, am I right about that? Or am I so incredibly biased by the Spider-Man content? You know, I think, in this? I think it is. I mean, I think in a different year, you know, Black Panther is obviously a very important movie. I think that, uh, you know, I would venture to say that in a, in a year when Black Panther doesn't come out and doesn't have that much sort of like, you know, again, it's still like live action movies are always going to get, more recognition uh, and black panther's a fantastic movie i'm not taking anything off of the movie but in a different year i think maybe you could have swapped out black panther for uh as a spider verse for best picture you know yeah um, i think they just don't want to put two superhero movies in that discussion yeah no. <laughs> right it, it was my favorite film of the last year and i wrote up a, all these pieces for the hollywood reporter on it like basically assailing it as much and you know i think time will be very kind to the film well, that's what I'm trying to get at is I think that it is going to be an endless, like it's just going to be, it's like a seed that was planted in the ground. You know, um, I think just over, 
over time, it's going to be a bigger and stronger tree. You know, it's just changing so much about the way people even like the lack of shame, you know, that isn't like, again, as much as I love these MCU movies, so much time is spent in like sort of trying to make you forget they're wearing costumes or forget they have code names. And when with a drawing that, you know, with a, a film that operates in a universe that is cohesively from the hands of artists, you know, uh, every line is made with intention, uh, which is slightly different than filming something live action, right? Because in a live action set, you, you get what you get sometimes. Like you only have a certain amount of time, you have a certain set that you have to use. You can only have the actors for certain days. So there's a lot more wobble, right? Uh, with an animated movie, like every line in that movie is someone made a choice. You know, they may have made it from instinct, but they still made a choice. And I think it just really allows you to live inside of it in a way that uh, frees the filmmakers from the shame or the, the, the need to deal with somebody else's shame or, or um, shame isn't probably a too strong a word, but people's weird need to have everything feel important in a realistic way. Sure. Uh, you can get to a, get to an emotional realism a lot faster. You know, I, I, my hope is that like the, this movie and it's focused on art and comics and the creators of comics, which I would love to see. I loved seeing your name up on the screen probably not as much as you did, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I hope that it draws people to go and check out, comics you know in the way that the mcu movies really kind of haven't yeah i'm hoping it opens the door for more creators to be involved in these kinds of projects and um you know like one of my favorite decisions in the whole movie is like miles is an artist in a movie made by artists it's like if you're trying to inspire people to you know embrace that like the main hero you know, in a lot of other movies, that would feel really cheesy that he's this kid that, like, tags walls or whatever. But because it's a movie that is, on a meta level, so much about the creation of it, you know, in the hand of the artist to have the main character, you know, have that as a hobby now. It's just a fantastic, again, another fantastic choice. Like, another subtle, fantastic, realistic choice. And he's a fan of the DC Universe and Supida Man. <laughs> right. Well, hey, man, cross your fingers on Supida Man. I think that <laughs> I, I, I got a good, you know, good. I don't know for certain that's happening, but I, I would put money on it. I would put money on it, too. Um, So, you know, back to Gwen and this film, Um, you know, you came in there and you saw they were already working on the character. Do you have any understanding um on how early she was brought into the process? I mean, she's such a new character and the turnaround time on those movies is not quick. So, like. Did they see your guys' design and just go like, "She's in the film. We got to figure this out." Do you have any sense of when that came together? No. Well, Phil told me that that her books were pretty instrumental in like nailing down tonally, you know, like conceptually what they wanted to do with the movie. I mean, I don't know if he was just being kind or whatever, but you know, he he said on record that he went to an art installation where uh, an artist had reinterpreted classic paintings. And then he told me that he read Spider-Gwen and was like, oh, this is the same thing. You know, like you're reinterpreting and remixing like something so that you give it a new life and a new meaning. 
and I don't want to, again, I don't want to overstate how important our book was because obviously this is a Miles Morales movie. Sure. <laughs> right. But I can't help but see my sword school, so to speak, artistically on in a lot of frames of that movie. Maybe that's wishful thinking on my part. But, you know, the way I understand the, you know, and I'm not I'm no expert on it, but the way I understand the way this, the process of the movie went was that the first couple of years were just a lot of R&D. You know, because they basically sure. broke broke the way that you make animated movies, CGI animation, and then rebuilt it, you know. So the movie took, you know, supposedly about four years to make, but the first two years were them trying to figure out how to actually make it look the way it looks. So I think a lot of the story stuff came a little later. And by that timeline, you know, that would have put us about two years into the comic. It, so in that regard, we we talked about the sitting in a tree, Spider-Man, Spider-Gwen crossover story. So much of that story is similar to what occurs in the film. Was there any any synergy between the comic and the movie in, in that regard? No, that was my crazy idea. <laughs> I just like woke up one day and was I was just really, you know, no offense to anybody that has done a, a Peter-Gwen cosplay together. I think it's cute. Uh, and sweet sometimes, but I was just a little annoyed by seeing 40-year-old Peters and 19-year-old Gwens, you know? Yeah. Uh, it, it was just a little weird to me. And I and I just wanted to distance. Uh, I felt it was important that she get to know Miles. I felt like they had a lot in common, you know, both in terms of how they were created, but also, like, who they are within their worlds. And I thought it would be interesting to have... You know, it's funny, I'm not a big DC Comics guy, but there's a lot of like little like more DC-ish decisions once you start dealing with multiverse stuff. Sure. You, you start to get into some Grant Morrison, Alan Moore, Crisis on Infinite Earth kind of ideas that you used to not see in Marvel as much. Um, and I thought like, you know, that's a thing to embrace with those two characters is that they had their own universes and maybe now they could have a shared one. We had to, you know, pin down. Then, of course, like, we all fell in love with the idea. Then I had to actually, like, sit down and go, like, wait, they are old enough to date each other, right? <laughs> like, or to possibly <laughs> without it being creepy. Uh, and it's funny thing we ran into is a lot of people still viewed Miles as the age that he was when he was introduced. Which is, I mean, I guess it's a, a phenomenon that makes sense. You meet a character when he's 10, and in your head, he's always 10. <laughs> You know, uh, sure. but at that point, at that point, he'd been around a long time and there'd been like big jumps between secret wars and stuff. And so but again, the idea was not to like make them necessarily a, a in stone. They're going to be a couple. It was just the idea of exploring, like, what does it mean to have that that extra responsibility heaped on your shoulders, you know, and to, and to, to have um, to find commonality in being a spider person, which is a thing that they they ended up doing in the movie. Uh, so it's just a weird synchronicity in a way. I don't know that they knew we were going to do that. They seemed in the end informed by what we did. Um, there seems to be lines directly taken from the comic that ultimately find their way into the movie. Well, there are a couple things that when I gave notes on the, on, I pointed back to the comics and said, this is why we did this. And this is what I would do. Um, in that that stuff I get a little squishy on what in my head about what I actually told them versus what they, was there before I said anything. Sure. 
I like how the movie kind of flips your whole point about these older Peter Parkers and young Gwens being together. Uh, <laughs> right. Because, like, in the end, she says, well, I'm older than you are. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah it's... um. Yeah, I just felt like it was important to uh, have them have a, a connection, you know, like if if and it's the thing that you see brilliantly capitalized on in the if you read that sitting in a tree arc, one of my points in that story was is that spider family is like the ultimate team up, you know, yeah. Uh, if you're dealing with like all these, like you're facing insurmountable odds or whatever, the idea that like the spider people have become a family over the years and over these like alternate realities and stuff is how they save the day in that story. And I think they beautifully capitalize on that in their own way and achieve that in their own, you know, get to that same conclusion in the film. The whole process has been like an out of body experience. Sure. I can't even imagine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, it's alternate lives on top of alternate lives. You know, when I went in and talked to them the first time, I was like, before we get into this, I have not been doing drugs today. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, you know, this is a, there was an alternate reality in which I was going to be an animator. And then you saw the visuals and you're like, I must have done drugs today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, you know, there was an alternate reality when I was going to be an animator. I almost did that. I could have very well been working on this movie. Then I'm watching this movie that is a character that at one point, you know, where I'm sitting right now as I'm talking to you, I'm about two feet away from where I woke up on my couch and was like, oh, I think I got this, you know. And then it's a movie of, you know, as a character that has a lot of me in her and a lot of Robbie in her and a lot of Rico in her. And like, you know, I can just see my life in it. And then it's a movie that's about alternate lives. And it was just like, there's too many levels of, <laughs> of weirdness going on here. That's so uh, weird. Yeah, exactly. And I, then, it, you know, and then the ultimate like weird layer was when we went and saw it at the premiere and people, you know, had seemed to like really be digging the movie and it's a theater full of Hollywood industry people, you know, sure. and uh, people seem to be really digging the movie. But when she swung out for the first time, people stood up and cheered and we were just like, what? <laughs> are these the 20,000 people that are reading our book? <laughs> right, exactly. But it was like, you know, producers and act directors and actors and stuff. And they all stood up and cheered. And I looked over at Rico like, what is happening? <laughs> she does have maybe the coolest debut of any character in cinema history. Yeah, a friend of mine said when they released the trailer, she got the Wolverine pops his claws at the end moment. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, that is actually what the best way to describe that. Sure, sure, sure. So speaking of character debuts, you had a chance to create another version of Spider-Man or Spider-Men in Edge of Spider-Geddon with Spider-Ben and Petey, which is a pretty stupendous comic that seemed totally independent of Spider-Geddon, save for a mention here and there. Can you speak to the kind of the creation of this universe and characters and kind of how this came to be? Yeah, that one sat with me a long time. There was almost no Spider-Gwen because of that comic. <laughs> like in another reality, in another, another reality, sure. there was uh, no Spider-Gwen. And instead I did a middlingly successful sales-wise old man Spider-Man comic. I'm really, really proud of that comic. Uh, I actually, you know, wish that if I were in charge of putting all these books together, that would be the last chapter of Spider-Gwen. Like, I would love to do more with those characters, mm. but I, I don't know that, you know, it, it seems like the people that read it really liked it. And Tanchi and I loved 
and uh, Brahm all liked working on it together. The art is incredible, and uh, the storytelling is really um, bold for, I guess, like Marvel's publishing. Like, you break up time in really interesting ways. It's like you're getting a summary of, like, 50 years of these characters in a way like yeah, yeah when issue. i would explain when i would explain the plot of that pop, that comic to i think i explained it to robbie thompson in particular and he was like so this is a mini series right <laughs> and i was like no this is 20 pages uh it just felt like it was important to take those risks you know i knew it was a different kind of comic like then let's say spider gwen is a more meditative kind of comic sure because it's about an old man, you know, like looking right, back. talking over beers, too. Yeah, looking back on his life, trying to, you know, find out, you know, is there was there anything meaningful, you know, to all this, like, strange shit that happened to him. And I just, you know, in a weird way, by the time we got to it, I guess it was, I didn't recognize this at the time I was writing it, but I guess it, it was sort of meta-commentary on what it felt like to make, you know, something like Gwen to have all this like weird, you know, stuff just start being thrown at you and have to figure out what it all means to you, you know, and you've got this, you know, like I don't have any kids, but I always liked the idea of like, what, what's Peter like if he doesn't really learn the lesson? Like he's not, he kind of half learns it. I've always been fascinated with people who sort of get out of jail, you know, um, I, I had some legal problems when I was in my twenties I, I had a DUI when I was 25, and it changed, it saved my life because I was really in, in the middle of a weird existential crisis, and I was kind of melting down. And it was the thing that like helped me get my life back on track and figure out what I wanted to be. And fortunately, nobody was hurt. But I've known other people who kind of got away with it, you know. And it and it they didn't they didn't change so much. And I always thought like, well, what happens to Peter if he doesn't learn? You know, he doesn't get the cost of losing Ben. Sure. Um, and then who is Ben if his, you know, his most famous line is now a thing he has to live with? Because it's one thing to say that and then you're dead and there's no, like, exploration of that idea. Right? And so in that way, it was like the bookend of um, Gwen because a lot of what I was inspired to do in Gwen was Captain Stacy's his ethos, like his whole, like, parenting style and the things that he's told her are things that they actively are still engaging with each other in, you know, sure. whereas Peter, Peter lives in the shadow of these like words that are carved in stone, you know? So they were both Gwen, the spider Gwen stuff and the spider Ben stuff were supposed to be uh, explorations of, you know, living with a parent or, li or be, or in one hand living with a parent and on the other hand, being a parent. Uh, Cause I guess, you know, in a way, Gwen feels like a child, one of my children, <laughs> uh, you know, um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I love doing that comic. I'm really, really proud of that. And I think, you know, Tanchi and Brom are both sort of unsung geniuses. I can't, I always think about the scene with the paint in that comic where he's trying to cover up the kind of JJJ yeah, you know, propaganda and just the tactile nature of, the paint dripping on Ben's head and things like that are just quiet moments that just stick, stick with me. Well, like, well, again, you know, I'm talking, you know, we talked earlier about how when you write for different artists, the books have different tones, you know, um, Robbie, I wouldn't have written that scene for sure because Robbie has a different storytelling style. Like Robbie's, 
you know, a little more out on the edge. Whereas like Tanchi, it was a little more like writing for myself and that like, it was like, uh, if you call attention to a detail, that means that that is supposed to, to mean something and pay off. So that all that stuff with the house paint was, you know, if you watch it, the color changes, Mm -hmm. like initially it's like a bland taupe color. And then when he gets powers, I think it turns blue. Like all that stuff was. And you can see his blue handprints at the side of the building. Right. So all that stuff was intentional. Um, And then you have to have an artist who's interested in that stuff, you know, to pull that off. It's, you know, it's not always the fault of the artist when they're not interested in something. (laughs) You know, some of it's casting. Uh, And when you work on a long series, sometimes you're working with an artist and you, you know, you've more or less been on the same page. But, you know, the story wants to go in a direction that's different than what the artist would typically be interested in. So sometimes those those combinations don't necessarily, you know, sometimes it's like I've been watching a lot of British Bake Off. (laughs) It's like sometimes you get like a, a great, you know, baker and the, 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 all the ingredients are there and it's just like, they don't have enough time or for whatever reason they take too big a swing and it just doesn't come together. And the key is just to learn for the next time, you know? One of the things I liked that you did with the story is you kind of flipped the origin story on its head, having Petey teach Spider-Ben a lesson through yeah. like loss of the relationship. And, you know, if, if, if you're saying that like Petey is like Spider-Gwen and you're like Spider-Ben, like what, how do you feel like going through the Spider-Gwen, like the years of doing that comic has changed you? Uh, I mean, I think it's made me a much better writer. Um, that's for certain. Uh, you can't do you know, 40 issues of a comic that's just like, you know, every month just do. <laughs> yeah. And not like learn something about your strengths and weaknesses, you know, and what you would do better or what you would do differently or how to live with, you know, it's certainly taught me how to live with criticism and probably applause. I hope, um, you know, that's not a thing people tell you about when you start doing this stuff is, you know, comic book artists are, it's such a small industry in the end, at the end of the day. Uh, I don't mean that to disparage it, but it's like compared to film or video games or something, you know, but a lot of people go into it for the authorship of it. And people don't really tell you how to handle success. And I, I hope that we've, I hope that I've handled it fairly well, but it definitely put me to the test. You know, it's, um, Mm. it's, it's taught me a lot about like what, the power of like investing in something earnestly means, I mean, it's a thing that it was always theoretical to me. Like it was like, to me, it was like, I, I can't make comics without trying to make them personal on some level, but to have that actually be validated is, um, I don't know. It, it gives me the confidence to move forward in an industry. That's not always certain, yeah. you know, and to know that like, even if I never do another Marvel comic, like I left a big, a bigger mark than, you know, I I could have ever hoped for, you know, because at this point she's been around five years, which means she's probably gonna be around another five because she's in these movies now. So you get a character that lasts 10 years or whatever. And now it's not just a, hey, remember when Ben, when Peter Parker was a clone? <laughs> it's, uh, you know, and I like Ben Riley or whatever, but, you know, there's all these like weird little blips on the radar of like, um, you know, do you remember this thing? And then you mine it and bring it back. Uh, once something's been around five or ten years, like it's an established part of the mythos now. Sure. And 
And um, yeah, so it's taught me a lot about that. It's been really validating and and, and challenging in, in its own ways. But, you know, I'm just lucky I, I, at the end of the day. Like the, the time, if it comes out in a different month or a different year or, you know, a different event or whatever, maybe it doesn't. Maybe, you know, we tweak one different thing on the costume. Maybe it doesn't work. Give her ballet shoes. <laughs> right. Well, I like the ballet shoes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I always say, like, I just think that uh, things have to have different iterations over time. You know, I mean, you know, as well as anybody, you're a giant Spider-Man fan that like part of the fun of Spider-Man is watching it change. And there's different eras and there's like different eyes and different webs and different, you know, costumes and like. Um, and that's reflected in that film, but the, like the little minor debates and like the little minor way, ways people make things personal, you know, like my Spider-Man has Ditko ideas or my Spider-Man has McFarlane webs or whatever. Uh, like that's a test of something that's, that stand that, you know, stays. And so the idea that we've, we're now there's basically t- three versions of Gwen's costume. It's like, I, I can't, I look forward to the day when there's, you know, 10 slightly different iterations. (laughs) Edge of the spider Gwen or whatever it is. Yeah. Not to hand you more applause, but you know, I've always appreciated how patient you you are with your books. You know, I I guess spider Gwen had a schedule, but um, like something like Southern bastards, like it, it it is so personal that like it, it's worth waiting the time for it to come out. And you're right. Like the reason I, I read Spider-Man comics is because I can chart the change. And it's why I read comics in general is because it's a medium that is personal and can have changes that other mediums seem more reluctant to kind of embrace. Yeah, that lunchbox thing, right? Like once the thing becomes a lunchbox, there's the need to sort of like boil it down into something that's safe, you know, and with comics, um, you know, it's even like reflected in when you go to a con and people draw con sketches. I always say like the funniest thing is a lot of times one of the big reasons I think Marvel and DC should never crack down on artists drawing con sketches and selling prints and stuff is because that is the stuff that keeps, that's where that's like the, the laboratory, you know, Yeah. <laughs> you'll, you'll get like weird versions of Batman that end up making it into the comic or whatever, because those artists are just sitting there playing. I'm always reluctant to ask my favorite spider artist to just draw me Spider-Man, even though that's really what I, what I want, because I know <laughs> I could get something really crazy from them. Like yeah. I was in line for Humberto Ramos and I thought I should just ask him to draw me a bar of soap because you know, I'll, I'll never, it'll be Humberto Ramos's soap and he'll never get right. that question ever again. But ultimately I'm like, well, draw me a superior Spider-Man, Humberto. Yeah, right. Well, he probably he's either bored with drawing Spider-Man or he appreciates it because it's something he could do quickly at a show. <laughs> you know, yeah. like at this point, he could probably draw Spider-Man in his sleep. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I just hope I get lots of spider ham. <laughs> I love your spider ham. Because <laughs> I don't do con sketches right now, but eventually I'm sure I will again. And I just hope that. I leave enough a big enough mark on Spider Ham that that's all I ever draw. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. 
So going back to, because uh, we're going to talk about that in a second, going back to Petey and, and Spider-Ben, the end of the story, there, there's it's kind of ambiguous, but Petey seems to have been lost or Uncle Ben has kind of lost his way from his family. Was yeah. there a plan for the character to die in Spider-Geddon or was this kind of a story that you hope to tell in the future comics? It's more a story I wanted to tell in the future. I, I felt like I didn't really know the, the ins and outs of what was going to happen in Spider-Geddon. You know, I just knew it was a cool opportunity to do another one of these one-off stories. And Nick, again, was like giving enough to like give us some room to do something. Um, he was like, you know, really there's only one allusion to Spider-Geddon, you know, mm-hmm. that, they, that they had fought in this thing. And people, people took that and ran with it, which is cool. But there are a lot of people who, for whatever reason, thought that that was a direct tie, like that 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 we were spoiling his death that was going to happen in that event or something. I don't sure, know. Sure, yeah. It came, people, it came out before Spider Geddon even started. It was right? yeah. Sometimes people have strange theories. Uh, sometimes people take things a little too literally. But yeah, it was always just supposed to be like this is a vignette about two people. Uh, who had this whole universe of adventures, and we don't know yet how Peter died, but he did. Uh, and that has left this big hole in Ben's life, you know, when we meet him in that bar. And he's just trying to reflect on what it all meant to him and find a, a reason to, you know, go back out into the street again at the end of the night. Well, for I, better. I hope you do get to tell that story at some point. Yeah, I got two iterations of it sitting in my head, and they're both pretty crazy, and I don't know which <laughs> I don't know which one to go with yet. But uh, who knows? You know, the door's not closed on me doing more spider stuff. Uh, I don't know that it would be anytime soon, but hopefully they'll they'll have me back one day. Well, you are doing some more spider stuff, so let's talk about that. It's um, specifically Spider Ham. So it was recently announced that you'd be writing and providing art, I believe, alongside David LaFuente for the Spider-Man yeah. Annual Number 1 featuring, featuring Spider-Ham. What can you tell us about this book? Uh, I've, been, I've been trying to get them to do a Spider-Ham comic for like 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> I talked to, in fact, I talked to uh, I, uh, the guy that uh, directed Miguel Huron, I think is his name. He directed and wrote the uh, little spider ham short before the um that's on the digital release the sure. dvd and i tweeted out that i really liked it and he sent me a direct message and said that made my day because one i love southern bastards and two spider ham is your child <laughs> 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 and i was like well you know i guess dan brought him back first but uh he was the funny thing is, is when they asked me to pitch Gwen, or when I decided to pitch Gwen, the first thing I said was, can I do a Spider-Ham one-shot? And they said, well, we're already using him. And then I pitched Spider-Ben, and they were like, well, this is great, but we're already using Ben. So that's how we got to Gwen, was Ham, Ben, Gwen. <laughs> that's the <laughs> like, natural order of things. Yeah, that was the order of things. Uh, and I got lucky. Third time was the charm. Yeah, I just like I I love that stupid character. I again like it. It, it comes down to I love trying to make people care about things that they otherwise might be ashamed of, uh, or feel some sort of like prejudice towards. And there's just not enough comedy in, in comics. 
You know, comedy always in comics is perceived as being like super, super broad. And I'm not going to sit here and act like this comic is not broad. You know, the one we're doing, but it's also very personal. It's a, it's about without getting into the spoilers about it. The main feature is about what is Ham's life like if his villains all disappear, (laughs) Hmm. (laughs) which for me was very personal because I, I hit a point in my life where like suddenly I didn't have as many deadlines. And it was a, you know, a, a, a tough time to like sort of like figure out who I am again, because you're so busy when you're a comic creator. Like if you're lucky, that sometimes you know you lose sight of what real life is like. Uh, and that's sort of what this was about. That's what the main feature was about. Is about. Is there any reason this book is called Spider-Man Annual instead of a Spider-Ham Annual? No, that's a marketing decision. I did, I was actually surprised by that. I mean, hopefully it sells a lot and I get to do a lot more Spider-Ham because initially I wanted to do this as a mini series and I kind of had to reconfigure it to do a one shot. And I'm really happy with the one shot. I think it's as close to like writing a little animated movie as I've ever as I've been to at this point. But I would have loved and and it's set up so that I could do a lot more with it. Well, da- David LaFuente is, like, born to do Spider-Ham. Yeah, I thought he was a really good choice. Uh, you know, we were batting around names of who to work with, and he's friends with Tanchi, who, um, you know, drew Spider-Ben. And they just happened to be, like, talking online, like, on Twitter one day, and I was like, David's a good choice for this, because, you know, he had done Ultimate Spider-Man. You know, and I, I remember when he stepped on the Ultimate Spider-Man, like, just being like, wow, this is really bold. This looks like manga or something, you know? Yeah. Uh, or is definitely influenced by it. And I just felt like he's a good middle ground, uh, like in a way where sometimes a middle ground, you, you take ice and fire and all you get is lukewarm water, but he's not that at all. Like he manages to like balance the two things. And I felt like that would help in terms of helping us, you know, sell it to mainstream comics fans in terms of like giving it a shot. Like in my head, you know, and you'll see because I'm drawing the backup, but my Spider-Ham look is going to look a lot different. <laughs> uh, but I like the idea that he's got these different influences. And um, I think, like, if I were a little kid, I would probably look at the way he draws Spider-Ham and be way more excited <laughs> than I would of, you know, the way I draw it or the way maybe even he is in the movie. Would that be your ideal situation where you got to write and draw a Spider-Ham book? I don't have enough time. <laughs> uh, I don't have enough time in the day to do that. I mean, I think funny animals is certainly a, a big part of my DNA and a big thing that, you know, <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's quite a thing to say. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. Uh, I mean, but they're in everything I do, you know, like even Southern bastards, we have like a whole cast of like, you know, there's a Kung Fu chicken and all kinds sure. of stuff. And then the backup, I don't want to put this in stone yet, but I'll just like be real coy and say that the backup is me and someone that you will really be excited about. Uh, I'm drawing it and I'm co-writing it with somebody. And the person, if this comes together, we talked last night, and if this comes together the way it should be, fans of Spider-Verse will be very happy. Well, that's really exciting tease. Uh, yeah. um, but but I'm more excited about one other thing, and it's the basis of your and my internet relationship. And that mm. is, will Razorback be making appearance in this title? I'm trying, man. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really wanted him to be in the main feature, but there was no space. So I'm hoping 
there's some space in this backup to at least like have a a, a walkthrough. I'm putting I, all my some, chips on you. I'm putting at them some all point on they you. gotta eat barbecue together. <laughs> they do. They do. They do. <laughs> my favorite thing is how much of all the things in Spider Verse. One of the, the thing I'm the stupidest proudest of is ham eating that hot dog <laughs> you you know my final question on my list here of questions for you is to get a definitive answer to you about this is okay. spider ham a cannibal or not no and i have two reasons for that sure lay them out one is he's a spider that got bit by a pig of course so if he eats pork products like you know not exactly the same thing and then two, he's a cartoon character. That's what it, you know, the very first time I made the joke, that was the joke. That, like, he's not a cannibal unless he were eating Porky Pig because he's a cartoon character. Now, like, whatever whatever cartoon hot dogs are made out of, you know, that's up for debate. Well, I mean, it seems pretty obvious, at least in that one image, that the, 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 the mascot for that hot dog place is a pig. Hey, but he's not. He's a spider. Yeah. <laughs> right? So just, just you, in the movie he's a spider too. You can see him get bit by uh his yep. aunt. Right. Yeah. So if that's what you need to wrap your head around that absurd joke, you actually have a reason. <laughs> there you go. To me it was always, you know, this is an absurd flourish and here's a, a a a reason why. To me like, you know, I've been thinking about that a lot today. Just like sometimes the worst things in comics are when people try to explain things. Sure, sure, sure. So feel free to ignore the answers to that question. Right, yeah, you go with God on that one. (laughs) (laughs) If it it really creeps you out, good. (laughs) If you love it, good. (laughs) Why why did we not see the reappearance of Spider-Ham as Gwen's uh, imaginary, uh, I guess, like, voice of conscience? In the book? Yeah. Well, he shows up in the future, right? Oh, that's true. He's, uh, in the future, he's... He's uh, the, basically like the Ben Graham of the family, you know. He's like their uncle. <laughs> uh, of course, and he's married to a real pig, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he has a niece called Charlotte because that's my Charlotte's web joke. There you go. There you go. Real <laughs> highbrow stuff. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's layers, man. <laughs> well, to take us home and end and this show, because you've been so generous with your time, um, I guess I'm curious what it's meant to you personally to see Gwen's trajectory as a character in the world of Marvel and pop culture, as well as see other creators write her new stories. I mean, again, like it's just uh, I want her to stick around forever. Uh, I don't know that. Look, man, I'm really, really proud of what we've done. I don't know it's, if it's going to hold up. I don't know that it's to everyone's taste. I don't know that, you know, and I don't know that it should be. And I think in, you know, 10 years, maybe people will look back on it and be like, you know, that was pretty whack. (laughs) But, (laughs) but in the time and place that we did it, I'm very proud of what we made and of the doors. I hope that it helped open. I always say if, if it did nothing else, I know that I see a lot of guys reading it, uh, and I think that's important that, you know, men and young boys read comics about, you know, books with women that are the leads that are, you know, complicated and heroic and tragic and all the same, you know, things that male characters get to go through all the time. It's emboldening to see, you know, just how many 
little girls seemed excited by it. Like, you know, it, that's an exciting and hopeful turn of events. We were in the right place at the right time. And that's not trying to take any, you know, thing away from what we've done. But uh, it means a lot to me to, like, try and do things in comics that reach audiences that have not been reached. I think you can see that, you know, I feel I'm at my best when I'm trying to do that stuff, even if it's a little sloppy. You look at stuff like Southern Bastards is the same way. Uh, you just, I think comics are, you know, sometimes... A little needlessly narrow. I mean, I think we sometimes don't see the forest for the trees in terms of what audiences outside of the people that are already sort of drinking the Kool-Aid uh, might want out of these stories. And so I want to always try and aim to take what I love about this medium and these stories that I've been reading my whole life and try and do something a little different with them and try and at least make an effort to like reach an audience that may not have had any prior engagement with it and Gwen in particular I get a lot of people that come by the table at conventions that go like this got me into comics cool. people of all people of all walks of life you know like big grizzly men that love southern bastards and <laughs> you know it's just uh, that's the most rewarding part is when somebody comes by and goes like hey my girlfriend gave me this or my boyfriend gave me this or you know uh, you know my dad has read comics his whole life and he passed this down you know this was the first thing I saw that and that happens way more than I even recognize uh, so that part well probably- I, I I thank you for it I mean if there's any reason I do this show it's to evangelize comics and and try to herald them as a co-equal medium as any of the other you know television movies. You yeah, know, standard literature, and uh, and I know that your books have really moved that forward in in a, in a lot of ways. Thanks, man. Thank you. Well, on that note, we got to bring this to a close. Jason, what should people go out and buy of yours that's coming down the pike, and where can they find you online? Uh, online is just my name, and I'm mostly on Instagram and Twitter. I'm trying to Marie Kondo my Twitter a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to like you know talk less but be more uh, more. I think, we, I think we could all take that approach. You're right. And in terms of comics coming out, I mean, Southern Bastards is sort of on hiatus. I'm working on the next couple issues right now. I don't know when that's going to hit. We, we're trying to avoid some delays, uh, as many delays next time. And then for Marvel, the only thing that's immediately coming down the pipe is Spider-Man Annual. That comes out in June, and that is the Spider-Ham stuff. And I think it's safe to say, go buy that book if you want a Spider-Ham book. Yes, I would encourage people to buy a lot of copies of that book. Because <laughs> I would write Spider-Ham until they like pry him from my cold, dead hands. No, I would really like to do a solid sort of like Spider-Ham run. I think that like there's a lot of people that would like that. Maybe even if it's not for me... I think like some success with that character would again be one of those things that reaches an audience that comics don't typically aim for, you know. Alongside uh, something like Squirrel Girl, I would imagine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, Are you doing uh, a variant cover for that book? Uh, for Ham? Yeah, I am. Well, very exciting. See, now you can buy two copies of it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. There we go. Well, thanks again, Jason, for coming on the show. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. My name is Peter Porker. Spider-Ham, Spider-Ham, 
friendly neighborhood spider ham spins a web that's the gig kind of weird cause he's a pig look out here comes the spider ham life is a plate of bacon when trouble's in the making you'll find the spider ham spider-man into the spider-verse what a pig i'm right here Thanks again to Jason Latour for sitting down with me to talk about all of his fabulous work on a variety of Spider-Man titles over the years. And thank you as well for joining us for this episode. We've got a ton of great content coming down the pike for you all. Mark will be returning in the next week or so, meaning we can get to episode four of our season three content. But in the meantime, our Patreon subscribers should check out our Patreon page and their podcast feed this week where we've already got special reviews of the entire Nick Spencer run up through issue 18. Why wait to get caught up in a few months? Remember, for just $3.99 a month, the price of a new comic, you'll get access to our exclusive new issue reviews, b-book reviews, extended interviews, mailbags, and more. And for $10 or more a month, you'll get access to some awesome commissioned artwork this time from Barry Kitson from the Brand New Day era of Spider-Man. Also, check out the Untold Talks of Spider-Man, our sister podcast that's covering all the hidden corners of Spider-Man's complicated web of stories. In fact, I'll be appearing on that show as a guest shortly from now to talk about Amazing Spider-Man's Grim Hunt story, where Craven was brought back from the dead the first and only time. Plus, we've also got the amazing Spider-Slack community for you to join. It's the only non-toxic place on the internet to talk about Spider-Man. Just check out this episode's description for a link to join our Spider-Man talking community. Of course, you can follow me on Twitter at at SupSpiderTalk, where I try to keep everything kosher and everything about Spider-Man. It's a lot of fun. And as we're always sure to remember... The words of our dying lizard friend Peter, with great podcasts, must also come the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. Don't, don't miss the next in-